This is a Federal News Network podcast. Passing government funding bills may be a top priority for Congress by the end of the year, but it's far from the only item on its to-do list. Legislators have to sift through more than a thousand amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. Some are straightforward, like adjusting retirement benefits for federal firefighters. Perhaps more contentious, though, is language to prevent Schedule F from returning. A handful of these amendments have gained support from NARF, the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Organization. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman discussed details with NARF's Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs, John Hatton. I think it's too early to say what additional things may be included in the NDAA uh, by the end of the year. We're certainly pushing for all those that we've expressed support for, the Schedule F1, you know, including language of the Preventing a Patronage System Act has probably gotten the most attention and maybe the most controversial, where the other ones aren't quite as controversial. And it shouldn't be controversial, but I think there's more opposition on that particular issue than there are on the other ones. So we're certainly pushing for that to be included in in the NDAA by the end of the year. Let's talk a little bit more about the amendment to the NDAA that would essentially do the same thing as the Preventing a Patronage System Act in terms of preventing any future president from reinstating a similar Schedule F type policy. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the conversations have been around that lately? The Schedule F executive order that was issued at the end of 2020, I think, really displayed that there is a statutory loophole that could be exploited, where the the merit-based civil service really relied on this general consensus and the statutory framework provided a good deal of flexibility to administrations. And I think the Trump administration had really exploited that flexibility in creating Schedule F in a way that it was such a broad exception that really threatened to undermine the entire system by greatly expanding positions that would be akin to political appointees. So we saw that as a big threat at the time and potentially disrupting the transition from one administration to the next. Uh, We also see it as a threat long-term in terms of undermining that merit-based civil service. You know, there are good reasons to have a merit-based civil service. It's been in some form of it has been in place since the late 1800s. Make sure you have expertise and knowledge in government. Make sure you have institutional knowledge transferred from one administration to the next. Make sure you have people that are, you know, their primary allegiance is the constitution and they don't owe their jobs as much on political favor with whoever is in power. And so whether that's the Trump administration, a Biden administration, or any administration, we think there should be a, a nonpartisan civil service to serve the American people. So obviously the the issuance of that executive order in 2020 displayed that there is this kind of statutory loophole and this threat that exists. You know, while maybe last year didn't get as much attention after it was revoked, uh, we've seen House Oversight Republicans introduce bills on this and vote in committee markups to bring this back, even codify Schedule F. Uh, We've seen reports from Axios about uh, presidential candidates uh, looking to bring this back at the beginning of an administration, which would be a much greater threat than, you know, at the end of the administration when it never had time to be implemented. We certainly think this may be one of our last best opportunities to pass this into law. Uh, prior to the next presidential election to prevent kind of that threat that it comes back, you know, in 2025. But as of now, it seems like that's something where it's still too early to tell whether or not that will actually be included in the NDAA. So it's in the House passed NDAA. It was included via an amendment introduced by Connolly and Fitzpatrick and voted on on the House floor. 
It, there's been an amendment submitted by Feinstein and Cain to include that preventing a patronage system language in the Senate NDAA. But at this point, it's unclear whether the Senate will take up their own version, whether there'll be a conference report, and then everybody just votes on that uh, overall compromised version. So, you know, it's up for debate what the details of that final bill will look like. And it's unclear, you know, in what the process is that that will come to the floor uh, of both chambers. But certainly there's been discussions by proponents of this on the exact language. So it may not be the exact language of that preventing a patronage system act. It may be something, you know, a consensus language that's similar, does the same purpose, but is consensus between the administration and House and Senate Democrats. Other than that, NARF has mentioned a couple of other different amendments to the NDAA. There's the Honoring Civil Servants Killed in the Line of Duty Act, the First Responder Fair Retire Act, and actually the latter of that, the Federal First Responder Fair Retire Act. We just saw the Senate pass that bill. So what does that really mean for the NDAA amendment there, and why is NARF backing these two bills? On the First Responder Fair Retire Act, no, it's not needed in the NDA. It's already passed the House. It went through the Senate via unanimous unanimous consent. So I would not foresee that being added to the NDA because it doesn't need to be. We expect it to be hopefully signed into law soon. That bill we support is just make sure that if somebody you know is in a special category retirement system and then are injured and unable to pre- perform that job, that they are not losing their special category retirement because they switched to another job. So that's just some basic fairness on that. If somebody gets injured because they have put their health at risk through their job, they shouldn't be penalized. On honoring civil servants killed in the line of duty, that is adjusting upwards for inflation, death benefits for the families of civil servants that are killed in the line of duty. So where things have not been adjusted at all for decades, giving a, a more generous funeral allowance, giving a more generous death benefit, Again, when somebody you know actually sacrifices their life for their country through their service, uh, we ought to be um, making sure their families are well taken care of. Outside of the NDAA, there are several other bills. One of those is the Social Security Fairness Act. This one's pretty interesting. It's something that comes up every year in this form of legislation, but this year it is a little bit different. It seems to have gained more support than it usually does. Does that make it seem more likely for that to go through this year? Well, we're certainly pushing Congress to do something on the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. The Social Security Fairness Act would repeal both of those provisions. Both of those, you know, unfairly reduce Social Security benefits for individuals because they receive a government pension in connection with work that was not covered by Social Security. So for federal retirees, that's the civil service retirement system. So simply by earning that pension for, through CSRS. And then going earning Social Security through separate work, um, that Social Security benefit you get is reduced. So there's been a lot of action on this. And the House side, the bill got 290 co-sponsors on July 15th. Um, That qualified it for a motion to get on the House consensus calendar, potentially laying the groundwork for a House floor vote. It reached its next requirement of 25 legislative days on that with those numbers of co-sponsors. And so it looked like it could be slated for a House floor vote. Now, one of the exceptions to that rule is if the House committee with jurisdiction decides to take that bill up and advance it out of committee, then it becomes off that House consensus calendar. So we saw the House Ways and Means Committee mark that bill up in September. You know, normally we would say that's a really that's really good news. It's further than the bill's gotten ever before. And this has been around for for decades now. The bad news about it was is it was pretty clear the intent was to prevent a floor vote by having the committee take up action. 
That said, committee members and committee leaders all said very positive things about trying to address the issue. Chairman Neal and Ranking Member Brady both have kind of more modest reform bills uh, addressing the windfall elimination provision and had talked about continuing to work together to find an agreement. So we're really pushing for some action on these issues in the year-end session. I think the most likely place for this in year-end legislation would be part of a tax extenders package, whether that's part of an omnibus or not. And I think the most likely outcome would be some compromise between Neil and Brady's bills rather than the full repeal. So we keep on pressing. We're pushing leaders to do something on this issue, given it's been a longstanding concern and there is so much momentum behind it right now. Another bill that NARF is following is the Chance to Compete Act, and it would basically change how federal agencies evaluate job applicants. It's something that is talked about a lot, the challenges with the federal hiring process. So can you walk through what that bill would specifically be trying to fix and why you're finding it important? Yeah, I mean, that one is focused very much on the competitive hiring process. You know, part of that merit system that we support in opposing Schedule F is to make sure that we're bringing people in, not necessarily based on, you know, their political allegiances or whether they participate in a campaign, but based on whether they're right for the job. But the federal hiring process has had a lot of problems. And so we certainly think the right move is to improve that hiring process within that system. And the Chance to Compete Act tries to do that. It tries to bring in subject matter experts as part of the hiring process. It tries to focus on skills and knowledge more so than degrees uh, to demonstrate that you are able to do the job. You know, in terms of using subject matter experts, it utilizes kind of some of the success of a pilot program the U.S. Digital Service did to integrate subject matter experts into the hiring process. You know, also moving away from those self uh, assessment questionnaires, which have not shown to have high rates of, of satisfaction for hiring managers. So the idea is let's use a process to make sure we have people that are qualified for the job that should be able to do the job to make sure that people who are looking to hire those hiring managers are getting the right people and keep that within the competitive service. So we're, we're following the right rules, but also getting the right results. And, and I think there's been a challenge within the federal government of following rules in, in a way that isn't necessarily getting the right results. And it's more checking boxes than, than getting that, that end outcome. And we really need to focus on getting that final outcome to be the right person for the job so the government can work well for the American people. You mentioned the subject matter expert qualification assessment pilot, and there's also guidance from the Office of Personnel Management from earlier this year around skills-based hiring. So basically, would this bill be in line with those sorts of efforts? And is that kind of how you see it? OPM has put guidance out. There was provisions, you know, there, there was indications that they're moving this direction in the president's budget as well. So I think the administration is already moving in this direction. And I think this bill will certainly codify some of that, push it in that direction, help support that effort. So it's nice to see a bipartisan effort from those in Congress also aligning with what the administration is doing. And hopefully it can result in some improvements in the hiring process and getting people into the jobs quickly and in a way that they're, you know, they're the right people for the job. Anything else, any other legislation that you're tracking right now that's gained attention recently or that you're continuing to look at? Well, we certainly want to see Congress fund the government um, fully through full year appropriations rather than a continuing resolution. So we'll certainly be tracking that process of, of them negotiating the omnibus. As part of the financial services and general government appropriations bill, there was some report language 
accompanying the House pass bill, but also accompanying the Senate draft that exists uh, that was released in July, putting some attention on the Office of Personal Man- Management's Retirement Services Division and you know, the customer service it's providing to federal retirees. We've continued to hear, hear issues getting through on the phones and getting some basic transactions processed. So we want to make sure that there's continued attention on that and continued improvement in some of those processes. John Hatton, Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Organization. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, 
And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, 
I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. 
Maximum Nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.